We recently had a season in the church uh, that we called 40 days. And the easiest way to understand it, I guess, would be as uh, 40 days of prayer that we had as a church. However, we didn't want to just spend uh, that period of time doing a spiritual activity a bit more. We wanted to have 40 days of drawing near to Jesus. And so there were uh, all sorts of things that went on. There were prayer meetings, there were kids' videos, there were podcasts, there were days of prayer, there were all sorts of other things. And those things were great. And thank you so much for all of those uh, who got involved. But for me, the real highlights were the personal stories hidden among all the other activities. The people who experienced a deepening of their relationship with Jesus in that time, and I hope since too. And really, that was what the 40 days was all about. But we don't want to leave it there. It's not like as a church we've now said, right, we've, we've done the uh, drawing near to Jesus thing, tick onto the next thing. No, as followers of Jesus, we never move beyond the, uh, the drawing near to Jesus thing. Uh, and interestingly, in those 40 days and since as well, uh, we've heard God speaking to us quite a bit about continuing to come closer to him, uh, to draw near to him or to use uh, the biblical word that's, that's often used in older translations to abide with him. And so what we want to do this summer is spend our time in the talks on a Sunday morning uh, mulling this over a little bit more. What does it really mean to abide in Jesus? What does it mean to draw close to him? And most importantly, I guess, how can we put that into practice? And we thought the place to go uh, for this uh, in our summer talk series would be in the Psalms. Now, the Psalms is the largest book in the Bible and is found almost completely in the middle. Um, and it's a collection of songs, essentially. It was the songbook for, for Israel. Uh, and uh, the songs, the different Psalms are written by different, uh, different songwriters um, who really knew what it was to abide in God's presence. They knew how to speak to God. They knew how to hear from him. And, and they longed to be with him. They longed for his presence, which is the way they often put it. As you read from the Psalms, you read the writings of people who clearly had very alive and meaningful and deep relationships with God. So as we wanted to deepen our relationship with God, uh, we thought it would be a good place to camp out for the next couple of months. And uh, unsurprisingly, we're going to start right at the beginning. Today, we're going to start in Psalm 1. Before I uh, 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 read the Psalm, before we read the Psalm together, uh, a couple of pointers. Uh, really important to realise for this psalm and for all of the psalms that follow, Psalm 1 is not an academic paper. It is not an ordered statement of doctrine. It's not even a letter to someone uh, or a history like other bits uh, that we find in the Bible. No, it's a song. It was written uh, to be sung to people and to be heard as a song. Now, unfortunately, we do not have any recordings uh, of Psalm 1 or any of the psalms as they were supposed to be uh, composed. Um, and actually, we haven't known of the sheet music either, which is a shame. But for, for our purposes, it probably doesn't affect us so much because what we get is the Psalms then as poems, essentially, just the words to us. And Psalms and uh, songs and poems operate in a very, very similar way. They speak first to our hearts and our feelings and our emotions. And secondly, they speak to our heads, to reason, logic, etc. And we're meant to feel songs 
and poems. We're meant to soak in the language and the imagery before we dissect them and chop them up and interrogate them. And that's what we're going to do uh, today. So uh, Emily is going to read the psalm in a moment, and then I'm going to leave some space for you to reflect on it on your own, and then a bit more time for you to uh, reflect, talk about it in, in groups and reflect on it in groups. And there'll be some questions up on the screen to help you. Uh, but basically, I just want to give space for the Holy Spirit to speak directly to you through his word before I put my uh, particular spin on it. So here we go. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They'll be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Right, I, I hope that God has already spoken to you uh, through this amazing psalm. I mean, I love this psalm, and I, I think part of that is because of the powerful and rich imagery we find here. I mean, obviously, there's the, I'm sure you've dwelt on some of this stuff, but there's the imagery of the kind of baddie in the psalm, isn't there? This, this guy who loiters around with the wicked, with sinners, with mockers, and he ends up getting blown around like chaff, like, like sawdust on the floor of a sawmill. And this person is an example of, of someone who we should shouldn't follow. Don't do what they do. They're a cautionary tale, I suppose. But it's the description of the goody uh, in the psalm that really grips me, this person we should emulate. And the godly person is described in verse three. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Can you picture that tree? I'm not going to put a picture up on the, the video because I think the words uh, do it for us. It's, this tree is planted by a river, isn't it? Maybe in your imagination, it's standing tall and proud like an oak tree. Or possibly it's kind of it's, its branches are, are, are dipping down into the water. They're overhanging like a willow. But whatever tree it is, we know why it's there. It's by the river because it's, it's, its roots are drawing from the water of the river. It has this steady source of perpetual nourishment and refreshment. And what's the result? Well, the result is this. Its leaf never withers. This is an evergreen tree, not a deciduous. Its leaves never go brown or brittle and fall to the floor in the autumn. It's never left naked and spooky and spindly in the winter. No, its leaves stay bright and luscious and green. And actually, not just that, it's not just leaves that this tree has. It bears its fruit uh, in each season. You think, well, what does that actually mean? Well, hopefully the, the psalmist then switches from tree to person at the end of verse three. The tree is gone. And now that the psalmist is simply describing the righteous person directly and says this, and they prosper in all they do. Don't you want to be like that? To stand strong when everyone else is getting blown around by the wind. To grow and to mature, knowing that you're plugged into this real uh, perpetual source of strength that provides you all the energy and nutrients that you need to flourish. Don't you want your life to be fruitful? For you to prosper in that way, for you to produce the good things that your creator made you to produce, to glorify him and to serve others around you. 
Well, how do we get to be like that? Well, it's in verse two. It's in the verse before. They delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Now, what I want to do uh, in our remaining time is unpack a little bit more what this means and show it how it relates to the uh, theme of our series, Abiding in Jesus. You see, I could leave it there. And if I left it there, most of us would probably think uh, that this psalm is really just a big advert for Bible reading. It's just a a complicated and slightly overblown way of the psalmist uh, kind of wagging his finger at us and say, read your Bible more. Now, just to be very clear, I think for for some of us, spending more time reading the Bible may be where this psalm leads us. And I think that would be a good thing. I all cards on the table here. I've always found every time I've been been convicted to set the alarm clock a little bit earlier and spend more time uh, in God's word has been that's been a good decision whenever I've done that. I'd recommend that to anyone. However, with that said, I think there's a lot more going on here uh, than just that. And to see that, I'd like to overlay another passage, uh, this time from the New Testament, on top of this one, so that we can get a better idea of what's going on with this stream-fed, seemingly invincible and prospering tree. And that other passage is found in John chapter 15. Now, here in John 15, we have another horticultural image which has striking similarities to the one we find in Psalm 1. In John 15, we're not pictured as a whole tree, but we are branches of a vine. And we're not rooted into a stream in John 15. No, we're we're grafted into Jesus himself. But the result is exactly the same. We we prosper. We produce much fruit. Listen to what uh, Jesus says in John Uh, 15 verse 5. He says this, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So then, how do we become like the tree of Psalm 1? Or how do we become like the vine branches of John 15? How do we live these flourishing, fruitful lives? Well, You might think that I've complicated it even further because each passage gives a slightly different answer. We even put our roots in the stream or we remain in Jesus. Which is it? Actually, as I think as we overlay these passages on each other, I think these instructions really come to life. And when we put them next to each other, I think we're really ready to refocus on what I think is the key word in Psalm 1. It's one that I've deliberately skated over so far. And that word is delight. Notice these, the, the godly person, the, the tree by the stream, is not someone who reads uh, God's law. No, he's someone who delights in God's law. The, the tree's roots don't just go down towards the stream because they feel, well, they really should because that's what a good Christian should do. No, not, not at all. They, they dig deep and reach towards this living water because they love it. They delight in the stream. But how on earth are we supposed to summon up such an attitude for a book? I mean, some of us don't even like reading a whole lot. So that's going to be an ask on its own. And yes, we, of course, know the Bible is not just any old book. But sometimes the Bible is even harder to get into than other books. I mean, it was written thousands of years ago. It it seems so cryptic in its detail often and so removed from our own experience, as you'd expect from an ancient book. And so, yes, we we might push ourselves through. We might steal ourselves to the task. But but delight in the Bible. Well, that seems like a, a very tall order. 
Well, let's, let's make it even taller for a moment, shall we? Remember the psalmist's exact context. When he's talking about the law of the Lord, he's not talking about the whole Bible as we have it. He was, he was writing halfway through the Bible. He didn't have, for example, the stories of Jesus, the Gospels. He didn't have favourite books of the New Testament like uh, Romans or Ephesians. Now, he's probably thinking about the, the Torah, the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, books like, I don't know, Leviticus or Numbers. You know those books? You come across those ones? Um, they're full of instructions about uh, things like, I don't know, um, mildew or periods or different skin diseases or possibly other bits uh, where you get just pages and pages of in-depth census data. <laughs> However far along the path of delighting in God's word you may be, I'd imagine uh, that those not bits are not your favourite bits of the Bible. But for the psalmist, he thinks of the law. He thinks even of those bits. And what does his heart do? His heart delights. Well, how is this possible? Well, I think this is where John 15 comes in. You see, it's very easy for us to see the stream in Psalm 1 simply as the law of the Lord, the Bible. But when we turn to John 15, we find that in a sense, that is a mistake. Yes, of course, in a way, as it said, the psalmist's delight is in God's law, in the scriptures as he had them. But at best, that was a secondhand delight. His delight went way deeper than that. It latched onto God's word, but it wasn't the delight of a, a bookworm or an ancient history nerd. No, he knew there was something hiding just beneath the surface of the law. And that's what got his heart beating and his blood pumping. You see, the stream that the tree reaches its roots into is the same as the vine that the branches grow from. It's not a book. It's Jesus. Of course, the psalmist wouldn't know, have known who Jesus was. He was writing hundreds of years uh, before Jesus was born. But if he'd met him, I bet he would have recognised him. Because he'd found him in that stream. He caught a glimpse of him in the law of the Lord as he meditated on it day and night. And even when he would have come to bits in the law about, I don't know, bodily discharges or what happens if your bull gores your neighbour's bull or, or those bits in the law. And like many of us, I'm sure he would have begun dropping off at, at those sort of points. But he learned to shake himself at those moments and go again and thinking there's something in here that I need. No, no, actually, more than that, there's something in here that I love. And I want to remain in it and I want to abide in it and I want to graft myself into it so I can drink from it, grow from it, flourish with it. Well, we know what that thing is. And it's not a thing, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. And he's the vine that we want to remain in. He's the bread of life that feeds us. He offers us water to drink that becomes a spring that wells up to eternal life. And he's the one that doesn't just demand our allegiance and our reverence, although he does. He grabs hold of our very hearts. And we love him, don't we? We love him. Isn't that right? I think that, that question can so often be met with a kind of, you, you drop your gaze and you start to feel a bit sh ashamed and guilty. And we second guess ourselves and... We reflect, do, do we really love him? And often we hear that question, do you love him, as, as do you love him enough? 
And we know that actually our love is lacking. We could love Jesus more. And so we kind of feel bad when we're asked the question, do we love Jesus? But I think we need to settle this right now. Do we love Jesus enough? Of course we don't love Jesus enough. What a ridiculous question. Think about it. How could we ever love Jesus enough? This is someone who stepped down from the throne of heaven. <laughs> and he lived as a human to get betrayed and to get deserted by all his friends and to be humiliated and tortured and executed for you. And then, oh, actually before then, the timeline's reasonably fuzzy here. He called you personally and he sent his spirit to change you to be more like him. And he's coming back again one day to the earth to initiate a new type of life for you that is characterised by perfect fulfilment and contentment lived in his uninterrupted presence that he's making available to you forever. And he did all of this, not out of some sense of, of duty, because that's the kind of thing that a God must do, isn't it? No, not because of that at all. He did it for the joy that was set before him. What's that joy? That joy is you. His joy. How could you ever love someone like that enough? But in a sense, we're not expected to love him enough. We're not, to meant, we're not expected to be able to love him in a comparable way to the way that he loved us. But, but we do love him. For anyone that knows Jesus, that sort of love kind of springs out of us. And sometimes it's a low level background sort of sense of affection Sometimes it's a feeling of peace and happiness whenever we think of him. Every now and again, for some of us, it comes out in a burst of emotion, I, I, I guess. And hopefully it grows and it matures and it develops as we get to know him more. But, but we do love him. Peter sums this up so brilliantly in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter was somebody who loved Jesus. He was asked this question, actually, do you love me? He was asked and his eyes dropped and he felt ashamed because he knew he should have loved him more. But he, he knew what it was to love Jesus from firsthand experience. And with the church he wrote to, he, he knew they'd never met Jesus. But he looked and he saw, amazingly, the Holy Spirit was producing in them the same kind of love that he had. And he writes this, you love him, even though you have never seen him. Though you don't see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy it all starts with that joy in Jesus with that delight in him from that we remain in him we abide in him we search for ways we can plug ourselves into him so yes there is a practical application from this passage which is remember that the bible is a good way of remaining abiding plugging in please keep prioritizing digging deep into God's word in your life however as we look to relearn about our relationship with God, there's a much more important question than how long are you spending reading your Bible? It's how's your delight in Jesus doing? And throughout this series, we're going to bump into all sorts of different how to's, how to speak uh, to God, how to hear from him, many more things, I'm sure. But all the time, most importantly of all, keep looking to find your joy more in Jesus. So we go through this series Keep asking God to send his spirit to you, to reawaken your delight in his son, to reveal to you new reasons why you should delight in Jesus. Because people who delight in Jesus remain in Jesus and abide in Jesus. And from this delight, they begin to see any available method to remain or abide in him itself as a delight. 
even if it's reading Leviticus, or going for a day or two without food, or waking up earlier than you ever thought you could to pray, or gathering with God's people when it's inconvenient, or refusing to do that thing you really want to do because you know that it will take you away from Jesus. So let's finish then by talking to Jesus and giving him space to remind us how delightful he really is. And if you're listening today and and you don't yet follow Jesus, um, well done for making it this far. It's great to have you here with us in this talk. But you might think, who's this guy? He must be on a completely different planet. How can anyone find their ultimate joy and delight in a guy who lived uh, 2,000 years ago? All I'd say is, uh, why don't you put him to the test in what he said? My claim and the claim of millions upon millions of Christians over the world would be that Jesus Christ is a source of joy that is enough for us. We found that as we put our roots down into him in all sorts of different ways, he's nourished us, he's strengthened us, uh, our leaves have stayed green and our lives have become fruitful. And if you like a joy like that, when we pray in a moment, why don't you uh, pray? Why don't you ask him if he can reveal himself to you? I mean, what's the, what's the worst thing that can happen? Surely it's worth giving a go, isn't it? <laughs> so let's focus our minds on Jesus, all of us. And we're going to do that with a song. And then some questions are on the screen will lead you in some guided reflection, uh, both for yourself and for the group that you're watching with.